Wow, glad that you're here today. Hope you're having a happy Father's Day, Father. And uh, today I want to break the, the Father's Day tradition because you've probably been there like I have when you come to church on Father's Day and the preacher gives a lesson toward the fathers and how you ought to be a better dad and how you ought to be a better husband, better man. And, and today uh, we're, we're breaking that tradition and we're going to preach to the wives. How many of you men are happy about that? Okay. So, so you, you get to have a happy Father's Day. On Mother's Day, we preach the men. Father's Day, we're going to preach to the wives. Our, our talk comes from Ephesians chapter 5. You might want to open your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. And uh, let's put this in context and read together. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed it and care for their body just as Christ does the church. And we're members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And then he sums up all of this teaching in verse 33. However, each one of you must love his wife if he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I, I hope you notice the different instructions that Paul gives in this summation and this secret. Wives need love. Husbands need respect. You see, Paul doesn't just slip up here and use the wrong word. We expect him to go, husbands love your wives, wives love your husbands. Paul knows more than the Beatles knew when they sang, all we need is love. Paul knew that men were wired in a special way that they need respect. Oh, they need love, but their primary need is respect. And wives are wired in a special way that their primary need is love. And today we want to talk about that. Because not only does Paul say this, but modern research into the family has confirmed that this is the primary needs. You see, a, a woman is always wondering in her mind, I know I love my husband, I love him dearly, but I wonder, does he really, really, really love me as much as I love him? Because that comes natural to her. The man is not thinking, does she love me? He knows she loves him. He's thinking, does she like me? And he's not so sure she likes him. Because he's craving something else. You see, the most uplifting words you can say to your wife is, I love you. The most uplifting words you can say to your husband is, I respect you. So today we want to talk to wives about how to respect their husbands. Now, Paul says in Ephesians 5.33, that's his primary need. Let's do a couple more passages that will support this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, 
So that if they do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now, now that word there, behavior, takes with it the idea of respectful behavior. What's going to win over that non-Christian is when his wife treats him with respect. He may not be everything he ought to be, but when you give him that kind of respect, Paul says that could win him over, not just to you, it could even win him over to Christ. And then look at this next passage where Paul gives some instructions in Titus chapter 2, verse 4. Then they urge the younger women to love their husbands and children. You know, if, if you look in context there, he's talking about older women teaching the young women how to love. But interesting here, the word is not the word we'd think it'd be, agape, the highest form of love. The word that they're supposed to teach them is phileo. You're supposed to teach the younger women how to like their husbands, how to have a friendship with their husbands. And so we see through Scripture this idea is communicated that you need to display that kind of respect toward your husband. You see, um, when we don't give what the other needs, we end up with this. I call it the crazy cycle. It's just an absolute crazy cycle. You see, the the wife is, is waiting on love. The husband's waiting on respect. Now, you you learn this just in dealing with people. People give what they want. If you have a friend or a relative who gives a lot of gifts, wake up. That's what makes them happy. They're giving that because they care about you, but that's also their love language. If you know someone who just gives encouraging words all the time, is always telling you the nice thing about yourself, wake up to that. What that means is that's really their love language. And so what happens here is often we give what we want, not what the other person actually needs. And so we get this cycle where the the, the wife is waiting on the husband to express love, and he doesn't express love, and she begins to complain and criticize him. Because what she's wanting to do is somehow get him to express his love. So she begins to complain and criticize and just scrutinize everything he does. And the man's sitting here waiting for respect, and the wife's not giving him respect. So he begins to um, talk harshly to her or even not talk to her at all. And so we end up with this cycle of not getting what we need that ends the other person to not give what we need, which goes on and on and on. The challenge today is for you and I to break that cycle of criticizing and being disrespectful, and on the other hand, not giving the love that's needed. So today, how do you spell respect to your husband? R-E-S-P-E-C-T. That's pretty interesting when you think about that. Who, who sang that song? Anybody can tell me? Rinka Franklin. You're, you're right about that. But she, here's the ironic part of this story. She was not the first to sing this song. In 1967, Aretha Franklin began to sing that song, and it became the ballad for the women's movement in America. That what a woman really needs is she needs some respect. Just a little respect would do. The ironic point about this is it was actually written in 1965 by a man named Otis Redding that was communicating what a man really needed was respect. And so today as we come here, we're going to use an acrostic with the word chair 
chairs to communicate this. Let's talk about some things very specifically. How do you spell respect your husband? First of all, conquest. Appreciate his desire to work and achieve. You see, a man is, is built and wired to achieve. That's why when a man talks to another man, the first question is not how many children do you have, not where do you live, but what do you do? Because a man very much gets his identity from his work. It's almost fa- it's very fascinating. Over the few, last few decades, as more and more women have joined men in the outside-of-the-house workforce, it's still not changed. What really fulfills them, the man still receives incredible fulfillment from his job, and the wife, even though when she may work just as hard as he does, her fulfillment comes from her home. It comes from her family. And so as you're trying to respect your husband, you need to make sure that you respect his work. I mean, he's just wired to be that way. You know this. You put two little boys in a room by themselves. And by the end of the day, they're going to find out some kind of competition, aren't they, where somebody wins and somebody loses. That's just the way boys are are wired. You, You might even take away, you may think, you know, I don't want my little boy to play with guns. It's too violent. And before you know it, he's taking bites out of his grilled cheese sandwich that makes it look like a gun. Men are just sort of wired that way. And so when it comes to our work, a man is motivated by what happens there. And that's one reason church sometimes is a hard place for men. remember reading a book a decade ago, Why Men Hate Going to Church. It's because we've almost made church sort of a, a feminine place. We emphasize the feminine parts of Jesus, his love and his kindness and his compassion, all those wonderful things that were part of Jesus. But we don't always emphasize the strength of Jesus, the Jesus who turned the tables over in the temple, the Jesus who was on a mission, the Jesus who was driven in everything he did. So sometimes men come here and think, well, this is just sort of a, a feminine place, and I can use my, my drive and my energy and my even competitive spirit way out there, but I come to church and I've got to shut it down. Well, understand, women, you need to appreciate his desire to work. And, and you sort of messed him up on this one because when you were courting him and dating him, you wanted to know everything about what he did, and you were so proud of his work, Right? But you got married, and if you're not careful, because he's so driven about his work, his work became your enemy. And so you begin to criticize his work. Now listen to me, ladies. When you critique his work over and over again, and, don't, and you begin to tell him his work's not important, what you are telling your husband, you may not recognize this, is you're telling him he's a loser. And so you need to support him in that. Now we know there are extremes on both sides here. I know Stephanie and I have battled that through, through our marriage and that, that I've become uh, too much into my work and I've had to, to pull back. And at one point, my work sort of became the enemy and in some ways rightfully so. But on the other hand, I love that she learned to respect and to love my work if I kept it in balance. And, and wise, I encourage you to do that for your husband. So that's the conquest part. The hierarchy is appreciate his desire to protect and to provide. He has a desire to protect you and your family. The word in Ephesians 5 for head doesn't mean what we think headship means. It means more than that. 
It's not just about authority, even though I do believe there's some authority there. It's about protection. It's about his desire to protect you and to love you as Christ loved the church. So he he wants to do that. Allow him to play that role. Appreciate that role that he has. I I love the story of the African-American evangelist E.V. Hill. He married a, a wonderful lady who was a doctor's daughter. She was used to having a lot of things. And Hill was just a struggling preacher, not making much. They're having a hard time making ends meet. And one night he comes home from work and he walks in. The living room is dark and he can see the dining room. There are candlelights. And his wife has fixed him a candlelight dinner and he is so thrilled. And he sits down for that dinner and they have a great time. And then after dinner, he gets up and he walks back to the bedroom and he flips the switch and the lights don't go, come on. He thinks maybe the bulb's out. Then he goes to the bathroom, he flips that switch and the lights still don't come on. And finally, he comes back in to the dining room where his wife is still sitting and says, Baby, why didn't you tell me that the power was off in the house? And she said, Honey, I didn't have enough money to pay the bills. But I didn't want you to know it. So I thought tonight... We'd eat by candlelight. She is respecting him in a moment where she could have disrespected him. And so women, appreciate that part of your man. A is authority. Appreciate his desire to serve and to lead. You know, the Bible teaches very clearly in the passage we've read. I know it's not politically correct to say this, but if we're going to be people of the word, we've got to say it. God has said that men are to be the leaders in the home. Now, does that mean dictatorial? Has that been abused? Absolutely it's been abused. But what Paul is trying to say there is that you need to lead in a loving, serving way. Every time I, I perform a wedding ceremony, normally this is what I, I, I say, is I will say to the woman, you have been called to submit to your husband. That's what the Bible teaches. In the long run, if there's a disagreement, you've been called to submit. But then I look to the man standing there and say, this will be absolutely no problem for her to submit to you if you will do what God has instructed you to do, which is to love her as Christ loved the church. But it doesn't take away from the fact that God didn't create a two-headed monster. That God gave man, the men, some authority in the home. But also understand this. Not only did he give man more authority, he gave him more responsibility. So, allow your man to lead. I hear many wives in this church complain that their husbands are way too passive. They wish they would take the leadership role in the home. But listen to me. Sometimes he does step out and you critique what he does, and you undercut him, and he recedes. Sometimes he wants to be that spiritual leader, but he feels inadequate being the spiritual leader because you don't always respect the way he leads, because the way he leads, even spiritually, is going to be different than the way you would lead. Let me encourage you this. Praise your husband in his good decisions. Be gracious when he makes bad decisions. And when you do disagree with him, talk about it behind closed doors. So that's the A. The I is insight. Appreciate his desire to analyze and to fix things. Now, a little bit over a month ago on Mother's Day, we tried to teach us men a question to ask. 
when our wife is sharing a problem. Baby, do you want me to come up with a solution or you just want me to listen, all right? But as we found out that a lot of her love language is us listening. But on the other hand, you've got to understand that he has been specially equipped by, equipped by God to have insight on things and to fix things. Ladies, you've been blessed by God. We would, I think we commonly call in our culture, great intuition. You feel things at times that he doesn't feel. You notice things that he doesn't notice. And so a lot of times there's a hole in his thought process that you're able to come along and you're able to help simply because you have felt something that he's not exactly understood. And so your intuition is extremely important. But on the other hand, God has given him insight. God has given him the ability to analyze something, to figure it out, and to fix it. And you need to recognize that. Because if you just live off your intuition and don't allow his insight to play into the picture, there's going to be another spot missing in your home. And so, yes, many times you just need him to listen. But understand this, you are going to frustrate him to death if all you do is complain about the way things are and you never want solutions. You ever known that person? Everything's terrible, terrible, terrible. I don't like it, don't like it, like it. Well, would you do this? Don't tell me that. Now, he needs to learn the time to be quiet, but you need to learn, women, the time where you need to listen and go, you know, God's given him a gift here to analyze this thing, to maybe even help me fix this thing that I need to listen to. We need both. The problem is if the woman becomes self-righteous about her intuition or the man becomes self-righteous about his ability to figure things out, the, the, the beautiful thing is God has given us two pieces of a puzzle that when they fit together, they make a very, very beautiful picture. But you've got to have both. And then relationship. Appreciate his desire for what I'm going to call shoulder-to-shoulder friendship. Now, women, you much prefer face-to-face relationships. In other words, you, you, you like, you do this with your friend, and you want to do this with your husband. Where, where you sit down face-to-face... And you share, and you talk about your feelings, and talk about your emotions. I can see the men getting uncomfortable right now. You love that. That's your love language. If he would just look you in the eye and listen and share and talk and experience those emotions, and he needs to do that. But you need to understand that he's not always wired that way. That's not the way he treats his friends. The way he gets close to his friends, he just goes and he does something. He's not really that complicated and that, that's why when he asks you to sit down at night and watch your TV show together, it's not just because he wants to watch that TV show. It's because you may not recognize this, but just you and him sitting together on the couch and watching that show communicates something to him. And when he gets up on Saturday morning, you've got 10,000 projects around the house, and he says, I need to go to Home Depot to get something. Would you ride with me? And you go, no, 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 I've got too much to do. I don't need to waste my time. You go, I, what, what he really wants is just your companionship. And what you probably don't recognize is just you riding to Home Depot with him and back might not make you feel too good, but it'll make him feel good. So understand his desire for that kind of shoulder-to-shoulder relationship. And then one other part of our, um, our acrostic, men, you'll be glad we got here, sexuality. Appreciate his desire for sexual Im- intimacy. Many of us have read those books that came out years ago that still are so useful called Love Languages. And in our, all of our love languages are different. 
But normally on the top of a man's list, somewhere there is, is sex. So it reminds me of the man, he goes to fill out the application for work, he gives his name, he gives his address, he gives his social security number, they ask for his phone number, and then finally they ask for sex, and he says, not enough. Well, women understand that that's a part of the way God has wired him. And uh, the Bible says you should give your bodies to each other except for a time where you might be fasting to pray. I love this quotation. It's convicting. The devil will do anything he can to bring two people together sexually before they marry, and he'll do anything he can to take them apart sexually after they marry. That's how Satan works. So I hope you look at those helpful things for you to appreciate. You see, all these things we've talked about here are not necessarily the same things you want, but there are things in your husband that you need to appreciate greatly and to show respect in that. So here's the question this, this morning as we start coming to conclusion. How in the world do I change? How do we break this cycle, you know, where she doesn't feel loved and he doesn't feel respected? It's just like an endless cycle that feeds off the other. Because I'm sitting over here waiting and going, you know, I'll love that girl if she finally shows me a little respect. And she's thinking, how can I respect my husband when he doesn't even love me? How do we break that? Here's here's the truth. Somebody's got to start. The coolest thing is if both of us start at the same time. But it's not dependent on that. You can break the cycle by you beginning right now even when you don't think you're getting what you deserve. Here's something, I, I, I think we have a, a pretty good concept about unconditional love, okay, that, that we are to give unconditional love, that God has loved us that way, even though, let's be honest, that's really hard. It's hard to love someone unconditionally. But a, another concept I think we probably should add to this equation is what we're talking about today. I think there's something called unconditional respect, You see, God gives us both. God not only loves us when we're unlovable, but God respects us when we're truly not very respectable. You read some of the letters of the Apostle Paul to churches that were full of sin and problems, and God still calls them saints, and God still calls them his holy people, and God still calls them his ambassadors, because God knows what that would do for someone And women, you deserve our unconditional love, that we can't sit back here and wait for you to be everything we want you to be before we love you. But your man also deserves what I'm going to call unconditional respect. You go, I can't respect him when he's not, well, you're wanting him to love you in your worst moments. What would happen if you just started showing him the respect that he deserved or didn't deserve? it will begin to change your relationship. So I challenge you right now. I think those are biblical concepts. Now understand this. I know the Bible talks about extremes where where someone destroys the marriage covenant. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just being in a marriage where, you know, you love each other and you do respect each other, but you don't always show it. And you're trying to work through issues. It's not always easy, is it? Because marriage is very, very hard work. 
And, and one of our problems today in America is that we have the wrong view of marriage. We believe marriage is the place I go to have my needs fulfilled. But biblically and traditionally in most cultures, marriage was more of a foundation of the culture than just a place to go get your needs fulfilled. That's a great sign light when that happens, but the foundation is we put a man and a woman together to make it through life together, to raise a family together, to create a firm foundation. And here's the truth. It's not easy. I was reading on Facebook this week, and I saw a letter I thought was so, so interesting. It was from Rick Warren's wife, Kay. You've heard of Rick Warren? I mean, he's the preacher of the Saddleback Church in California, mega church, wrote, you know, The Purpose Driven Life. And I mean, here's this couple revered, you know. But I want you to read what she wrote about their, their marriage. Forty years ago, June the 21st, 1975. Wow, that's exactly the day. I stood in the back of First Baptist Church of Norwalk, California, anxiously grasping my father's arm, waiting to walk down the aisle to meet my tall, skinny groom. Anybody remember that? We were barely 21, and although we thought we were incredibly mature, we quickly learned just how immature and broken we truly were. Rick was a well-known youth evangelist and currently a youth pastor. We felt intense pressure to have a great honeymoon and a great marriage. The honeymoon, which everyone says is amazing, was not. We hardly knew each other. That's another story. So despite having read the latest and greatest Christian advice books on marriage, sex, communication, children, and money, we quickly descended into marital hell, arguing hotly and unfairly about each of those old topics. We put on happy faces when we went to church. We faked our enthusiasm. So why were we so miserable? Why did we both secretly wonder if we had completely ruined our lives by marrying the wrong person? Divorce was not an option to us. It was the mid-70s, and Christians just didn't get divorced, at least not in our families. Even though Rick landed in the hospital with depression within three months, and I nearly had a complete mental breakdown from the stress and pressure of living a lie, we were stubborn as mules, and we were not getting a divorce. Fast forward 40 years. Tonight at a marriage vow renewal service, as I gazed up into the eyes of the young kid I married so long ago, I couldn't help but stand outside of myself and be astonished at how far we two stubborn mules had come. Instead of trembling anxiously as we did 40 years ago, this time we confidently held hands and repeated vows of love, faithfulness, forgiveness, grace, acceptance, and hope. Confident because our marriage had weathered some of the worst moments any marriage can endure and left us deeply, deeply loving each other. The promise to stay together until death parts us now comes with the painful realization that someday death will separate us. The rending and tearing of the fabric of our marriage will be something to dread. But that is then, this is now. So to the love of my life, let others have their candy Sweet love songs is their song. Nothing wrong with that. Ours will always be Huey Lewis, happy to be stuck with you. (laughs) And stuck together we are, like the sturdiest, 
most industrial strength super glue ever. Two stubborn mules yoked together with bonds, commitments, vows, pledges, promises, and oath that hold for us infinite sweetness. I challenge us today to learn from Jesus and love each other with that love. You say, I don't have it in me. Well, let me tell you, the only way you're going to get it is by allowing Jesus to give it to you. He will unconditionally love you and even unconditionally respect you. And that will allow you to give it to your spouse. And that crazy cycle that you've been in so long, and many of you sit here and you know you're in it, can turn in the opposite direction and become an energizing cycle where you feed off his love and he feeds off your respect. And you begin to build something, oh, that's not easy, but it's absolutely beautiful. So today, if you need to come to Jesus for this kind of love, if you need the prayers of his people today before you walk out of this building, why don't you come right now while we stand and sing?